AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. So, John, uh, I heard you've done some extensive research on total meltdown. Can you tell us about that? So, we're all pretty familiar with the meltdown exploit uh, from, I guess it was probably sometime last year. And that was a vulnerability uh, that kind of got down to the core of the processor um, and how operating systems executed instructions in there. Back in April, Microsoft released some patches to address the meltdown vulnerability. But as a side effect, they actually introduced a newer vulnerability, and they're calling that the, this one the total meltdown vulnerability. Unlike the original meltdown, which just allowed you to kind of arbitrarily read pages in memory that you shouldn't be able to read, this one allows you to write to them as well. Uh, but it's only really leverageable if you have applied some of these patches that were released by Microsoft to address that original meltdown vulnerability. The important thing about this one is that a proof of concept exploit has been released in the wild now. A person known as XPN, a blog post recently, and they also posted up to GitHub the source code to leverage that So the exploit. original meltdown, there were known exploits, right? But there were no known exploits for this total meltdown, the follow-on, is that right? Uh, as far as I'm aware, there wasn't any um, uh, like exploits in the wild for the total meltdown, right, okay. which is the Follow exploits on. introduced as a result of Microsoft's kind of botched attempt to patch the original vulnerability. So when he did his proof of concept exploit code, one of the things he was kind of gearing towards there is some privilege escalation, which is what you'd want to do if you're running at user level. I want to be able to write to something in memory that's going to allow me to execute my local privileges to right. administrators so that I have, you know, uh, full administrative capability over the machine. So, uh, interesting article um, about this, something that people should take a look at, especially if um, you want to assess whether you have any of these intermediary patches that were released by Microsoft um, on your machine. So, there were another set of patches released. Uh, the complexity here is that you need to patch in the right order. Uh, they actually released an out-of-cycle patch uh, to address this vulnerability uh, which had uh, a CVE number of 2018-1038, uh, uh, I believe, which is a Windows kernel elevation of privilege issue. And the knowledge base uh, article, that 409-3108, is a, a manual download. It's a manual security-only download that you've got to pull down uh, and apply that in advance of patching. Uh, that's actually to help uh, mitigate against a couple of other issues that patching causes. So there really is a, a lot to kind of dig into here. Uh, when you start to start patching things. And it's definitely recommended that you uh, try the patches in a lab environment on non-sensitive machines first prior to, to moving out to a wider uh, distribution just in case there are any impacts. Yeah, I think I saw a similar issue with an Oracle patch where an Oracle patch released a vulnerability. Do you think in general these companies are rushing to put patches out and are more, you know, we're kind of introducing risk because maybe they're rushing to fix one issue but not putting the same rigor into that patch code that they might into a full release? For me personally, I think that it, um, while there, there might be some of that, um, I think more it just speaks to the complexity of the technical solutions that we've built as an industry, um, where it's very difficult to um, make a change inside of something uh, to address one problem and have a holistic view end-to-end -end of, you know, what the consequences of that might be. 
And I would say um, I think the speed to delivery uh, wholly depends on how much it's actually being exploited in the wild. So if they know that this is um, something that's being exploited and causing a lot of problems um, in the ecosystem of whatever their operating system is or their environment, I think they're more quick to get a patch and rush it out, maybe without as much system testing and due diligence as they need right. to do, only because there's a real immediate and pressing need because uh, it's being actively exploited. But I don't know that that's the case here with this one. But Meltdown, general, yeah. you know, Meltdown in general was a very complicated um, problem to deal with. If you happen to be in this situation, just make sure you follow instructions on which Microsoft patch to put in and get them in the right sequence, and then I think you should be okay moving forward. Hey, Mike, uh, it sounds like we have another Drupal-geddon in our midst, and uh, it feels like we just heard about Drupal-geddon too, so maybe you could fill us in on this, because I don't know where we're at. Yeah, so, so Drupal-geddon 2 was, uh, was announced a couple weeks back um, as a vulnerability. The Drupal team you know, issued patches for this, even going so far as to itch, issue patches for no longer supported versions of their product. Like all patches, once they're released, they start to get torn apart and investigated by attackers, and this one was no different. Within five hours, the patch had been reversed, which does not give people a lot of time to patch their Drupal stuff. So Drupal-geddon... Three does actually require a user to be registered uh, on the site, and it does require them to have the ability to uh, delete a node. In this case, um, there is proof of concept code that's been put out there again, um, which shows how you can basically do command injection um, through uh, embedding of uh, a get statement with a destination parameter. And by utilizing uh, that flaw, attackers are able to uh, get commands to execute on the device uh, in the context of the uh, web server um, and be able to then take action from there. So, and if for the folks that don't know, Drupal is a, it's a really popular content management system. So there's, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of these installations out there, right? Yeah, actually estimates are that there's over a million installations that could be vulnerable. Okay. So there, there, there's quite a, quite a number of uh, there. The Drupal team actually, in advance of releasing the patch, they did actually do kind of a, a public service announcement, webcast, to let people know, hey, it's really important, you need to get this patch as soon as possible. Because we know as soon as it gets out there, it's going to be um, exploited by people um, pretty quickly. This is actually being actively exploited uh, in the wild. Uh, they've, they've seen results of that. Drupal-Geddon 2 was being used to deploy uh, crypto jackers and other types of malware. Uh, Drupal-Geddon 3 uh, apparently is you know, falling right in its uh, predecessor's footsteps uh, in that regard as well. Yeah, the cryptocurrency mining is interesting to me that, I mean, we've been talking about it a lot, especially in this kind of footprint where a lot of this is in um, you know, web large source. ISP web hosting yeah. infrastructures where Drupal Geddon probably gets deployed a lot. Very high horsepower machines, so they can be utilized both for um, you know high computation intensive things like yeah. cryptocurrency. Well, yeah, we so. just we consistently see that cryptocurrency mining is like a new motive for all these you know large disparate uh, you know vulnerabilities. That now it's sort of like the last thing we needed was another reason to. <laughs> for you know, hackers to go after these things, but now you know, crypto 
cryptocurrency mining is a it's a real avenue towards some financial gain. Mm -hmm. I'd be more concerned about people turning these into infrastructure as part of botnet operations right. and things of that nature. Not that cryptocurrency is a good thing that they're doing right. that, but uh, I could see more adverse side effects um, from you know botnet type operators. So hopefully we don't see a Drupal get in four yeah. like uh, three weeks from now. Not but. until next time we're on. <laughs> well, in order to actually um, resolve this issue, uh, organizations do have to patch for both get, uh, Drupal get in two and Drupal get in three uh, to be fully um, up to date uh, with patching and, and preventing uh, of this issue. Like any other software product, I'm sure we'll see other vulnerabilities at some point in time. Um, but definitely want to make sure that you get um, both those patches applied in order to be secure. If you're not, you know, implementing your website yourself and you're having a provider create your website, maybe check with them. Say, you know, does our content get generated with Drupal? Um, that kind of thing. Just because this is fairly significant and we want to make sure everybody gets the latest patches. Hey Joe, uh, what can you tell me about the uh, web stressor uh, developments? Yeah, so there was a big takedown operation. Uh, the Dutch police, in conjunction with the UK National Crime Agency and Europol, did a takedown of the webstressor.org DDoS for hire. And this is kind of a uh, pay-as-you-go type of DDoS service. So you can just go there, pay. 10 pounds or something and get an hour's worth of DDoS against the target. Pretty much, you know, you don't need a lot of... It's not a lot of money. <laughs> well, but yeah, it's not a lot of money and you don't, you don't need to know a whole lot. You can, you know, if we're playing video games or, you know, you have a test coming, that kind of thing where you don't have to be a hacker to just sort of recruit this DDoS service. So, um, you know, all the, the comments from the, you know, crime agencies seem to say they really they really rooted this out. Dutch police and the UK's National Crime Agency, they actually did a takedown. So they took down webstressor.org, they took down a lot of resellers. Based on some of the research from Brian Krebs, they know exactly, you know, there were six administrators of Webstressor, the, the individuals, and you know, it looks like the, the work that was done by this Project Power Off, they called it, the, the takedown effort, uh, so far it's been successful. So, you know, pretty interesting, uh, you know, I, I don't think we always get to this sort of, you know, how we're, how law enforcement is counteracting some of these problems. To me, when I've looked at these, I mean, we have to deal with botnets a lot too. So sometimes you want to reach out to these internet service providers and say, hey, you know, you're facilitating a botnet operation here at these domains or at these IPs that are in your space. Could you please investigate and take care of it potentially? That doesn't do anything to really get to the root of the problem, which is the person or the botnet operator behind it. And typically when I see these law enforcement things, I, I'm appreciative that they go through this, but it usually takes a much longer time because they have to go through all this process of finding the human elements behind what's actually going on. I sat through an interesting um, you know, kind of go through about how they have to do that and how they have to tie Twitter handles and other um, you know types of you know, anonymized types of communications, which will change over time. So like a botnet operator uh, might be using, you know, a certain handle for this period of time and then another handle for another period of time. And then they have to connect those two together 
Uh, and sometimes these are just, you know, sequences of numbers as opposed to anything that ties back to a profile of photos or anything like that. So it's very, very challenging. Yeah, definitely. It's not the first, of course, either. I was thinking about the VDOS botnet that also was taken down a few years yep. back. Yeah. So there's definitely law enforcement's doing a lot of these botnet takedown operations, especially when they get to a critical mass size that they're really causing you know, significant disruptions to the rest of the people trying to use the internet. Right. Um, so it's definitely a good thing. Um, and it's just kind of sad that we have to get to this point in society that, yeah. you know, um, you know, that happens. What's also interesting is that the, uh, in the 2018 data breach report that was released here this past month, almost half of the, the, the breaches um, that were, were included in their data set were attributed to organized crime. Which is, which is interesting because it kind of raises the question, is organized crime becoming highly technical or are they leveraging as a service providers um, such as, uh, you know, web stressor to facilitate criminal activity, right? What's their path of least resistance, you know, to monetize that activity? Uh, and so really it kind of does speak to, uh, you know, that, that continued rise of um, that, you know, crimeware as a service um, because it is profitable. Yeah, as long as there's money to be made, they're going to be out there. Uh, kudos to the law enforcement agencies that um, have been working these efforts, and uh, you know, hopefully, we'll see more of this in the future. You know, actually, there was an education campaign in Europe that they're releasing saying um, "hack for good." If you're going to do these things, there is a chance you're going to get caught, and when you get caught, it's not going to go well for you. Uh, whereas, if you have these skills and you're Hacking for you know the right reasons, uh, research or you know working for a corporation or working to mitigate threats, um, that's probably going to end up a lot better for you. All right, Joe, you ready for the internet weather this week? Definitely. All right. Well, nothing super amazing, but there are a couple of new things here. Um, this is the most probed ports chart, which is the ports that are probed the most, but not necessarily by the most number of unique sources. Something's not unexpected. Telnet, SSH, and the top positions here, we've seen them pretty much every week for the past several years now. Um, 8545 is that Ethereum wallet that has a vulnerability. There's still a few actors out there trying to look for that. NTP um, could just be people looking for open NTP reflectors for use in uh, reflective denial of service attacks. Microsoft SQL Server. The 445 TCP is probably related to WannaCry and those vulnerabilities around that that were being leveraged. Remote desktop protocol. The one I'm going to call out, we're going to take a closer look at, is 6379 TCP, which we don't see that often. Um, it did rise three positions, so it was down here somewhere, maybe uh, position 11 or something last week. Uh, so it was kind of hidden from view. Port 2000, uh, we're also going to take a look at another chart because uh, it's actually more interesting in the most sources probing. And then you've got web. So, um, in the terms of the most sources probing, we have a couple of repeat characters, but usually this is related to botnet-related activity. So, 2000 TCP is related to the micro-tick uh, vulnerabilities okay. that we've been talking about yeah. for maybe a month or two now. And then the 5555 TCP is related to the Android debugger service. Those are the ones that stand out to me. So port 6379 is related uh, to Redis, and this is probing for the Redis server. Uh, what's interesting here is you can kind of see there's definitely an upward ramp trend of a density of scanning. So there's more of it going on than had been in the past. 
and um, at higher levels than were achieved before. Yeah. You, if you use Redis, um, you might want to you know, make sure that anything that you have that might be internet facing is secured, protected from being compromised. Port 2000 TCP, uh, we've seen, and that's actually represented in blue here, uh, which is the more recent activity. And then prior to that, we have some red activity. I'm gonna, uh, the reason I include that is this is that 8291 TCP, which is also a MicroTik port yeah. There are a lot of MicroTik devices out there okay. on the internet, though. Um, and because they are kind of edge network devices, a lot of times they are internet fronting. So they expose themselves to the internet uh, more often than not. So, so is this overlap, or does this seem like it changed from one port to the it other? It does not overlap. Okay. It's changing from one port to the other. There's okay. a small amount of overlap here where you can see, and then they kind of went away for the most part. Uh, the red kind of disappears uh, from using the 8291 to switching over to using port 2000 almost exclusively. So I know we've seen this in the past. Does this seem like a configuration was changed by a command and control, that kind of thing? or Probably, in yeah. terms of how they want to look for it. So I think what's actually going on here is they're using these two ports because they're pretty much kind of exclusively used by Microtik, okay. and they're trying to use that as a means to find Microtik devices for later exploitation. So um, there is a remote exploit vulnerability. This was announced back on March 16th, which if we go back here, that would have been right about here. Yeah. So about two weeks later, something like that, eight days later it looks like, that's when we started to see an uptick in the scanning activity for um, these types of devices. So if you have MicroTik router, you would want to make sure you patch it. And that's one of the problems with these types of devices in general is people often forget that they need to be patched. Right. Um, so important thing to pay attention to. The next one, which we have talked about as well uh, quite a bit over the past couple of months, is a exploitation that is occurring over the Android debugger port on port 5555 TCP. This is actually a 120 day chart, so it's about four months. And you can see back here on, uh, maybe like February 3rd, February 2nd of this year, we went from basically nothing to a very smooth, perfect yeah. upsweep uh, to around 7,000, almost 7,000 scan sources per hour. Not a ton, right. but still a decent amount. And what's actually happening here is not so much a vulnerability as it is that people have accidentally probably left the debugger port open on their Android device. The purpose of it is to allow developers to get into the device and debug running code. But if you leave it open to the world, they can get in there, debug some code, or execute other code that's not meant to be running on there. And that's how they're compromising them. It's not just phones that are involved here. You know, We know Android is used in a lot of uh, phones and handsets, but there's tons of other um, deployments of Android set-top boxes, even inside television sets. Like I believe my Samsung TV has Android as its underlying operating system. Uh, you know, we only see five or seven thousand where we know the employed, uh, the deployed embedded base of Android is far more in the many, many hundreds of millions of Android devices out there. So it's a very small percentage of those that are exposing this port. And that's actually all we have for this week. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.